Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi guys, it's H. So today we're talking more about the kings and queens. A chronicle of history's most interesting monarchies. So, this book is by Brenda Ralph Lewis. It's a great book. And yeah, so I think this might be two parts or three parts. And today we are going to talk about Madness. In the Spanish royal family. So here we go. Madness in the Spanish royal family. The madness of Queen Juana I of Castile, 1479 to 1555, took many forms. Sometimes she crouched on the floor of her cell, unmoving. At other times, she backed into a corner wild-eyed, as if trying to melt through the walls to escape the demons only she could see. She refused to eat, if anyone were there to witness it. Instead, her food had to be left outside the door. She then darted out, snatched up the plate, and retreated back to her cell. When she had finished, she carefully hid the plate under her bed, or flung it against the wall, laughing madly. Juana owed her frightening state of mind to her grandmother, Isabel of Portugal. She introduced insanity into the Spanish royal family after 1447, when she became the second wife of King John II of Castile in the north-central Spain. Her naturally melancholic disposition was exasperated by the birth in 1451 of her daughter Isabel, the future Queen of Castile. Afterwards, Isabel of Portugal shut herself away, sitting and staring into the distance for hours on end. Later, she progressed to hysterical tantrums and, in 1452, her daughter was taken from her and sent to be cared for by nuns at a convent in Avila. Isabel had already been deteriorating for some time. Her melancholia turned to full-scale insanity, and before long, she was unable to recognize anyone. She did not even know who she was. In 1520, by the time Isabel's granddaughter Juana reached the same irretrievable depth of insanity, she had long been queen in name only. The real ruler of Spain and its gold and silver-rich empire was Juana's son, Charles, born in 1479. Juana was the third child of Queen Isabel I of Castile and King Ferdinand V of Aragon. 
and became her parents. Heir, after her elder sister, another Isabella, died in childbirth in 1498. Juana seemed ideal for her exalted position. She was a bright, attractive child, adept at languages. Like all proud parents, Ferdinand and Isabel showed her off at court, where she conversed in fluent Latin with clerics and performed with skill on the clavichord and guitar. But her outward gifts covered mercurial moods and an urge for solitude. One moment she was calm and dignified, the next excitable. Like most European princesses, Juana was headed for an arranged marriage. The young man picked for her by her parents, Philip, Count of Flanders, Duke of Burgundy, and heir to his father, Maximilian of Austria. The Holy Roman Emperor possessed the most dazzling prospects of any prince in Europe. Later on, Philip proved to be a disastrous choice, but that lay far in the future. When the couple were betrothed in 1489, Philip was 11 years old at the time, Juana barely 10. A proxy wedding took place in 1496, and Juana, now age 16, left for Flanders, accompanied by a magnificent fleet of ships, numbering, it was said, up to 130 vessels. After a difficult, stormy journey, Juana disembarked in Flanders, suffering from seasickness and a severe cold. At least, though, the greeting she received was warm-hearted and Juana's entry into Antwerp was a triumph. Clad in shining cloth of gold, she rode through streets decorated with floral arches and reverberating with the greeting and singing of the crowds. A month later, on the 19th of October, 1496, Juana and her entourage reached Lierre, now in Belgium where she met Philip for the first time. The effect they had on each other was electrifying. Juana had never seen him before, but her first sight of Philip confirmed all the exciting stories she had heard about him. He was 18 years old, golden-haired, and marvelously handsome. Juana took in the sturdy physique, the shapely legs, and Philip's air of boyish zest and fell in love with him at once. But it was more than just love. It was a lust at first sight and it was mutual. There were tedious official ceremonies to be performed, worthies to be greeted and nobles presented. But as soon as these chores were over, Juana and Philip buttonholed the nearest cleric, the Dean of Jean, and ordered him to take their proxy marriage one step further and wed them then and there. The hasty ceremony had hardly finished before the couple vanished into one of the hotel rooms, flung off their clothes, and made passionate love. Next day, a psalm church wedding officially completed the union. 
that had already been so hotly consummated. Juana was totally infatuated with Philip, and the spell never wore off. She went through the celebrations in honor of her wedding, which included a full-scale tournament and a days of desire for the beautiful creature whom the lottery of royal marriage had so unexpectedly dealt her. Philip appeared at first to be caught by the same hunger. What all this concealed, though, was that Philip and Juana were complete opposites. For Philip, the attraction was carnal, little more. Juana, however, wanted total possession. No mistresses, no separate lives, only absolute togetherness. She was too young and too completely consumed by the blaze of her adore for Philip to realize that he could never give her what she wanted. Long before he met Juana, Philip of Flanders had become accustomed to igniting noble young women and already had at least one illegitimate child to prove it. Flemish society was intensely hedonistic and encouraged promiscuity. Almost every pleasure of the flesh was condoned. Extramarital affairs were common and the registry of births overflowed with bastards. In this environment, not surprisingly, Philip saw no reason why his free-ranging way of life should be interrupted by marriage, or why his personal advancement should be curtailed. In 1498, Philip affronted his Spanish in-laws with an impotent bid for the crown of Spain. He declared himself next in line to the thrones of Castile and Aragon. The claim had no legal foundation. Ferdinand and Isabella, appalled at Philip's rampant ambition, sidestepped him in 1499 by, by persuading the Cortes, the National Legislative Assembly in Spain, to confirm their grandson Miguel, the late Isabel's five-month-old son, as heir to their throne. This, of course, superseded both Juana and Philip. Philip was not thwarted for long. In 1500, little Miguel died, and Juana was again named as her parents' heir. Now, the law was on Philip's side, for the husband of a queen regent could claim her title as her own, at least in her lifetime. Already, Philip had begun to found a new royal family. Juana gave birth to their first child, Eleanor, in 1498, their second, Charles, in 1500, and three more by 1505. It was not only Philip's crass claim to the throne that disturbed his parents-in-law. Less than two years after their marriage, Philip's love affairs were tormenting Juana with jealousy and began to corrode her personality as fixation wavered from passion to hate. Juana was so totally obsessed by her husband that she was unaware of important realities. France, for example, was Spain's great rival for supremacy in Europe, yet Philip, the consort of the future Spanish queen, was a Francophile fed for years by the Flemish council with pro-French propaganda. Philip, for all his glamour, 
was easily manipulated and made the perfect sponge to absorb these damaging political ideas. As heir to the throne, it was vital that Juana wake up to the truth. The one man who could make her face facts was Juan de Fonseca, Bishop of Cordova, a longtime family friend who majored in tact and diplomacy. When he reached Brussels, Fonseca found Juana deeply depressed, prone to nervous fainting fits and isolated from court life and hedged in by spies. In this state, Juana was susceptible and by the time Fonseca had finished with her, she at last understood the pro-French and anti-Spanish nature of the Flemings and how they had influenced and molded Philip in their ways. Philip, who left Flanders with Juana for a visit to Spain in 1501, hated his wife's homeland and the melancholy pull that hung over it. He detested the moralistic Spartan atmosphere and the sight of religious fanatics crying out for remission of sins while flagellating themselves until the blood ran. The summer heat of Spain blazed like a furnace, raising clouds of shimmering dust that made it difficult to breathe. There was too little green. Unlike Flanders, only stern mountains and half-desert terrain. Even the royal court was severe in tone. Philip came gaudily dressed in satin brocade, violet velvet, and cloth of gold to meet his parents-in-law, while Ferdinand and Isabel sat like monk and nun in plain dark robes. The official business of the visit to Spain was to persuade the Cortes of Aragon to recognize Juana and Philip as the official heirs of Ferdinand and Isabella. That proved difficult. Philip lapsed into a foul, sulking moon as the Cortes procrastinated, then made unpalatable conditions. Philip could be consort only so long as Juana lived, and if her mother died and Ferdinand remarried, any son of the Second Union would supersede Philip. Philip might just have swallowed that one, but what he could not take was the next subject debated by the Cortes, raising funds for war and his beloved France. At that, Philip wanted nothing more to do with the Cortes of Spain and told Ferdinand and Isabel that he and Juana, who, had be who was pregnant again, were going home to Flanders. His excuse was that he had been too long away from his northern realm. Adopting every persuasion they knew, Ferdinand and Isabel tried to make Philip change his mind. The most cogent reason against Philip's decision with Juana's pregnancy, which would make a long and more difficult journey in midwinter, potentially dangerous for her and her unborn child. Isabel was gambling on Philip's love and concern for his wife, but she masculated. Philip was perfectly prepared to leave Juana behind in Spain and go home alone. Juana became hysterical when she learned of her husband's intentions, but no dramatics, no tears, no wailing, no begging, in fact nothing, could make Philip 
set aside his plans. Philip left Spain on December 19, 1503. It took more than a year to poodle his way through France, Switzerland, Bavaria, and Savoy before he finally reached Brussels and then home. Okay guys, so I think we are going to leave it here and come back again with more of the madness in the Spanish royal family. I hope you all learned a lot and I will see you all again soon.